If you're tuning into this podcast episode fearful that you've missed thrilling Formula 1 action last weekend, fear not. Saturday the 22nd and Sunday the 23rd of August provided us with as much on-track excitement as the weekend that preceded it. The only difference between the two being that there was no racing this weekend. Let's get started. That's genuinely funny. I like that. <laughs> well, you know, I do make a habit of saying funny things. Sebastian Vettel's got it to Max Verstappen. And under braking, Leclerc has gone into the barriers at the penultimate turn. Perez ahead of Stroll, ahead of Ricardo behind. Oh, it's a tight finish. It's a photo finish. Adding another championship to his collection. It's Lewis Hamilton, champion of the world. A little bit of housekeeping before we get started, a bit of a public service announcement for you all. We said in the last episode that the party mode ban would be happening from Belgium onwards. However, thanks to my wonderful assistance and a great deal of research, we found out this ban will actually be coming on the Monza Grand Prix and will be available in Belgium. Just going to point out, we weren't wrong, the FIA postponed it. Anyway... For a second time, let's get started. Williams Racing has been sold to the New York-based investment company Derilton Capital after the conclusion of a £200 million deal between themselves and Williams owner Frank Williams on Friday the 21st of August. According to Williams' own social media pages, this transaction received unanimous support from the board of Williams who determined the transaction delivers the best outcome for the company's shareholders and secures the long-term success of the Williams Formula 1 team. This deal will see the Williams' name, team and base of operations remain unchanged for the foreseeable future. Current deputy team principal and daughter of Frank, Claire Williams, said when we started this process, we wanted to find a partner who shared our passion and values, who recognised the team potential and who could unlock its power. This sale comes after Williams finished last in the 2019 Constructors' Championship, has failed to score a single point in the 2020 Championship so far, and according to Forbes magazine, has also lost £13 million in the last financial year alone. When asked why this decision was made and what this sale would ultimately mean for Williams, Claire said, As a family, we always put the team first. This may be the end of an era for Williams as a family-owned team, but we know it is in good hands. This sale ensures the team's survival, but more importantly, also provides a path to success. This sale comes after Williams' own internal strategic review of his options ahead of a new era of F1 that will feature team budget caps and changes to the sport's competitive package for the 2022 season and beyond. Chairman of Derilton Capital, Matthew Savage, said the goal is to get Williams back to the front of the F1 grid as soon as possible. According to their own website, Derilton Capital is a firm focused on acquiring businesses across all sectors. Derilton has completed over 50 business transactions since its inception and have consistently taken control of a company and continued to work with its existing staff for the foreseeable future. So the question I have for you all today is, what are your thoughts on this deal? Do you think that Williams have made the correct decision in selling up to a proven company when times have undoubtedly been tough on and off the track? Or are you of the opinion that Williams has saved itself in the short term, but potentially it's damned itself in the long term in regards to its participation and success in a sport it's been part of for so long? I don't think it's damned itself. I, I don't know how one would, would measure that 
um, anyway, because we'd have to look to the future. Now, this is a company, Derilton Capital, or an investment uh, company that has investments in everything from from rigging to cooling towers and also in in foods as well so they have many fingers in many different pies and so they do have some engineering expertise and hopefully this will just be a bit of a cash injection into into Williams in the same way that Stroll led a conglomerate to take over uh, race racing point as it was then Force India this is just another version of that except we get to keep the historic name Williams and people like Claire Williams who does a fantastic job as team principal or de facto team principal still remains in her job so I know I think this is good for the team I would much rather they did this than just fade out like Lotus or Catrum because it's really sad actually when you see the old teams that had once great go through a period of no wins and then just flutter out the sport so yeah I think they've saved themselves here and I think that can only be seen as a good thing I'm just so pleased to see that they are remaining in the sport. I think we would all be really, really, really upset if they were to they were to leave. And you mentioned Lotus there. You know, Lotus, the Lotus factory is actually just down the road from where I live, and it is such a shame for our area. We've when we did have a Formula One team here, and we no longer do. And I'd visited the track and stuff when it was um, when they were a Formula One team, and they had testing and they had exciting events and days. And obviously, not much is going on there now. So I definitely agree. We couldn't really imagine that happening to Williams especially as they've been such a big part of the sport for so long and obviously we're really really fond of the current team and the and the current management and I'm just really pleased for Claire and the whole family and I you know I wish them luck I really hope that this is a change for the better for them yeah I fully agree with the others I remember a comment that I think it was Zach Brown made earlier in the year during the height of the coronavirus pandemic where he said that based on what he'd seen, the number of teams who could drop out of Formula One due to lack of funds in the coronavirus pandemic was up to four. And if you think about that, that's 40% of the grid dropping out is a, a horrendous thought. So I think any move such as this, whilst it is a shame for Williams and the fact that the it looks like, well, even if Claire and Frank Williams are kept in, kept on in a management capacity, it does look like they've sort of, they won't obviously won't have full running of the team anymore. And it won't be the family owned business that, We've uh, sort of come up from from the very bottom and now and over the years has reached very high levels. But I think at the end of the day, yeah, as long as an F1 team is saved, the fact that they are going to be on the grid for the next few years, the fact that they've got concrete investment behind them. It kind of has similarities with Racing Point or Force India as it used to be a couple of years ago when the team were just struggling for money. And the investment in the end that came in through Lawrence Stroll and uh, soon to be Aston Martin has just reignited that team, not just competitively, but financially. Hopefully Williams has the same. Hopefully they can put their struggles of the last few years behind them. Derilton, having done the research that we have, seem like a an honest company who are sort of used to that sort of kind of engineering, sort of like helping out with engineering sort of groups and businesses. Um, and Williams as a Formula One team would be no different. So it looks like these are these could be the right people to have both the financial um, backing for Williams, but also the knowledge that they can inject into the team to hopefully bring it back to competitiveness. So yeah, I think this can only be a good thing for Williams. Time will tell, of course, but I think despite the sadness of the 
team being sold from the the Williams family, I think it is overall positive news. Looking further to the future, are you a bit concerned, however? Do you have some reservations, regardless of this company's reputation, in the fact that Williams will no longer be a family-owned company and will basically be owned now by a US company which has no historical connection to F1, no emotional connection to the Williams team? Do you think there's a danger that if Williams don't fire on all cylinders over the next five or ten years... Derilton Capital may go, well, it's been fun, we've tried our best, we're pulling out our cash, Williams is perhaps gone for the short or medium term. I have those reservations, I'm concerned about that in the longer term, although I definitely agree with what we're talking about in the short term. What do you guys think? The problem with a family-run business, Tom, is you have you, there's no way to guarantee that the next family member is going to want to take over the the family business and hemorrhage money into Formula One. So you, you, just because it's a family-owned business doesn't mean they're going to re- decide to, to continue and, and retain the family legacy. Claire Williams' children or won't necessarily want to actually keep putting money into Formula One. So I don't think there's any more risk involved with an investment company necessarily than, than trying to pass things down into family. We might think there is, but the reality is, is if the investment company that they've picked, like... Um, Geraldton Capital is prepared to take those sort of risks, then I don't think it's any more any more risky than hoping that, you know, family members want to take over the business and, and keep in the in, in the Formula One game. So no, I don't have any reservations. Of course, if they pull out, I'll be disappointed. But again, it's it's just I think this is just a risk they were willing to take and they had to take now. So I don't think there was any viable alternative. Formula One's eighth Concord Agreement, a contract between the FIA, all Formula One teams and the Formula One group, was formally signed on August the 18th. Angus, tell us more about this. When you think of the stuff that comes out of the news in Formula One, you always think of either news about the races or driver transfers. But one thing that maybe sort of isn't talked about as much, and maybe this will enlighten some of our more casual fans perhaps, is the Concord Agreement, which was, as Tom said, signed uh, on the 18th of August. For those people who aren't uh, aware of the Concord Agreement, I'll just give a quick explanation of what it is. As Tom said, it's an agreement between the FIA, so the motorsport um, governing body, the Formula One teams and the Formula One group. It basically just dictates the terms between the teams. Um, it's a set of contracts. The main focus, perhaps, is the rules around revenue and prize money distribution, a very important aspect of competing in Formula One because at the end of the day it's a sport and they're trying to compete to win and that sort of the Concord Agreement lays out um, the money side of that and what the rewards will be for those competitors depending on where they finish. Fun fact, it was given its name because the original document was signed at the FIA headquarters and the Place de la Concorde in Paris in 1981 and that was the first of eight agreements signed in total uh, in the years 1981, 1987, 1992, 1997 1998, 2009, 2013, and of course this year's one in 2020. So it was close to completion earlier this year, but of course the COVID-19 pandemic took hold of not just the sport, but also the globe, leading to a delay in the signing of the agreement and also a sort of a new look at the priorities of the sport and of the basically what the aims of the agreement would be because obviously the financial implications that COVID-19 would have um, had suddenly needed to be taken into consideration. So issues such as, issues which had already come up, such as possibly agreeing a budget cap, that definitely became came to centre stage as lots of teams had uh, came to the realisation that they perhaps would not be able to afford Formula One in its 
state that it was in at the start of 2020. And also it led to growing pressure, the effects of the pandemic led to growing pressure for a change to the prize money to make it more a more fair distribution of the rewards that are given to teams. And also to try and possibly avoid a situation where currently we sort of, or the last few years we've had the top three teams, Mercedes, Red Bull, Ferrari, being way out in front of the rest of the field. Obviously that's changed a bit this year with the emergence of Racing Point and the drop-off that Ferrari have had, as well as the slight improvement of Renault and McLaren. But typically, it's been a pretty set competitive order, and one of the aims of the agreement was perhaps to change this order, to mix it up, to have something like, I don't know, a, a Racing Point or a Renault or a McLaren or a Haas getting on the podium or snagging a race win. Um, those kind of unpredictable results we love. So that was kind of that also became centre stage, as some t- teams realised that their level of competitiveness currently they were not likely to survive. And yes, basically, because of all these scenarios, the 2020 agreement was was perhaps the smoothest agreement that's ever been agreed in Formula 1 history in terms of the Concord Agreement because all the teams basically realised the situation, realised the need to come together, and it got signed incredibly quickly. Some team bosses, such as Christian Horner, say, commented how the negotiations were incredibly smooth and how it was much easier compared to the times when Bernie Eccleston was in charge of Formula One in the past. The one hiccup, perhaps, was the fact that um, we mentioned on the podcast uh, last week, or I did when I spoke about Toto Wolff and his future with Mercedes. Part of that was to do with the Concorde Agreement. Mercedes did not want to sign the agreement at first. Wolf, uh, the team principal of Mercedes, felt they were losing out compared to other teams, referencing what he felt in his eyes were Mercedes' major contributions to the sport, such as its investment as an engine supplier, providing engines for Racing Point, for Williams, and then also for McLaren from 2021. And also what he felt was the huge favour they dealt to F1 by employing the most marketable driver in F1 history in uh, arguably in Lewis Hamilton, as well as other grievances such as the fact that Ferrari managed to keep their extravagant historical bonus payment, which they've always, they've always received a bonus payment due to their heritage in the sport, which is the fact they have been there since the start in 1950. But Mercedes felt that that was unfair and that there should be some wiggle room on that. So that meant the deadline was pushed back. The deadline was originally August the 12th. This pushed it back to August the 19th. But then, all of a sudden, Toto Wolff came out, spoke in front of the media and said, he was all happy with the agreement. He spoke to Liberty Media, spoke to Chase Carey, the head of Formula One, the head of Liberty Media, and said that it was all good, and thereby concluded the quickest and smoothest set of Concord Agreement negotiations in F1 history. The good news about all this is it's committed all the current F1 teams to being on the F1 grid until the end of 2025. The Concord Agreement lasts for five years, this current one does. And that's for sure good news because obviously it ties everyone down. But you think of the examples of teams who may have been less committed, perhaps for various reasons, such as Mercedes, who have found the negotiations difficult. Or Haas, for example. Uh, Gene Haas, the team principal of that team, has come out before and said that he's had to consider whether it's worth uh, investing in a Formula One team if they're going to consistently come in eighth and ninth in the Constructors' Championship. But with the promises of a level playing field and greater competitiveness for the smaller teams, uh, this Concord Agreement has managed to persuade uh, teams like Haas to commit their future to Formula 1, which can only be a good thing. It should be exciting for Formula 1 fans and for the future of the sport, at least for the next five years. However, the caveat that comes with this is that that competitiveness that's been promised, the incre- the level playing field that should come about ideally because of the uh, budget cap, because of the better distribution of revenues, you almost have to expect that the, if it must happen now, these 
must be delivered for the level playing field, the greatest of competitiveness, the chance for those smaller teams to get some get some results that perhaps they wouldn't expect to. It has to happen, and that's perhaps will be the 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 test of time of this Concord Agreement, and it will be its legacy will be whether it delivers all of this. My question to you guys was going along those lines: What do you think the future? will hold for the sport if the proposed changes don't level the playing field as they're supposedly going to do? Um, I think uh, if they don't, if it doesn't level the playing field, Formula One will carry on because at the end of the day, it's a, such a big money maker and those teams that have money can continue. I think that the future will be rubbish because it means that eventually we will lose those teams that, you know, can't, can't keep up with the bigger ones. And, it probably will change the face of Formula One, but I don't think that Formula One as a sport will change much if things don't level because we're already used to, to be honest, let's face it, we're already used to a quite an unlevel playing field and we still watch, you know, whenever it's on and it's still a well-supported um, sport. Uh, it's obviously really positive that this that this uh, agreement has been signed so quickly and so efficiently, Um but as you say, I mean, it doesn't necessarily guarantee, you know, the levelling of the playing field over the next few years. So it will be interesting to see how it plays out. But I personally feel with the, as the sport is, I don't think that um, it, an, an unlevel playing field will stop it from continuing because it's just such a moneymaker and it's such a popular um, sport. And obviously we'll all continue to watch. I mean, I don't know. What would stop us from continuing to watch? That's an interesting question. Like, what would make you guys put your foot down? I think, I mean, <laughs> I was just about to say, I think if someone won every week. But I was going to say an entire season of, of, of yeah. only Barcelona. Okay, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah that true. maybe would be do it. Because for me at the minute, we, I, I almost just said then, oh, if someone was winning the whole time, maybe I would stop. That's just because clearly I'm, <laughs> clearly I'm still doing that. So not. I don't think much will make, I don't think anything will make us stop watching so i don't in that case i don't think that much will stop formula one continuing but would it be better with a level playing field 100 percent. i want to know why mercedes changed or total wolf really uh changed his mind so quick because there was nothing there was nothing that that sort of gave it away yeah it was it was a very strange it was it was literally about a week between so it was at the 70th anniversary grand prix when um total wolf came out was in the press conference and said um, the comments about how he felt it wasn't fair and that um, stuff like, for example, the Ferrari historic bonus and how and um, and also what I said about it not reflecting Mercedes' contribution to the sport over the last few years. And then, yeah, after a few days, the very next race, it came out in Barcelona and said that they'd signed on the dotted line and that he'd spoken to Chase Carey and everything was okay. But yeah, I could could not find any insight on that. It's a very, it's a very, very major u-turn in just a few days it is to be honest i think it's probably down to um, mercedes looking in the mirror and realizing they could probably beat everyone even with the limits on things like budget um which is a bit of a sad state of affairs and I'm, I'm hoping that this budget cap of 145 million which is going to come in 2021 will actually help level the playing field if only for the sake of teams like Haas and williams who can't afford to hemorrhage that much money because it's it's just a sport and it's just for entertainment so i'm hoping that this will just make it more accessible and in that way actually entice new teams that would be lovely actually so 
yeah, just like you said, um, just like you said, Angus, the test of time will be whether or not this works. And to be honest, I'm I'm really hoping it does because I, I would love to see more teams in the sport. Well, I think that if this Concord Agreement doesn't live up to its billing and doesn't result in more competitive and close racing, first of all, you'll see a great deal of anger from the team principals and those in charge of these smaller independent teams. I'm namely thinking Haas, for example. I'm thinking teams which are not firmly supported by a European car manufacturer. So we're looking at teams perhaps like Alfa Romeo, who have had some help from Ferrari, but not a lot, and are a small team. And maybe even Racing Point, if ultimately, without Mercedes' help, they, they go backwards. I think, first of all, you see a big sort of PR disaster what we'll see in terms of where the teams commit themselves, that's a difficult one, though. I think what we'll see, if this doesn't result in what it's meant to, we'll see the smaller teams which have, you know, informal but clear links to the bigger teams, those links now become formalised. So we would then see Haas becoming a direct feeder team to Ferrari, similar to how Toro Rosso or Alfa Tauri are to Racing Point. You see a similar agreement, I think, with Williams to Mercedes, with Racing Point to Mercedes, to with Alfa Romeo to Ferrari. You'd basically see the two or three biggest teams then just playing the rest of the grid and the rest of the grid being B and C teams to the giants of the sport. Some would say perhaps they've got that now. I think the picture could be far more bleaker. The situation could be far more um, segregated, shall we say, in terms of the, the classes of different teams. And I think that's the only way teams are going to stay in the sport if this doesn't live up to its billing. Alternatively, they could all leave, um, or some could leave. I think that's also a, a stark possibility. But those who stay, as I say, will then become B and C teams, I think, of the European car, um, car manufacturers who have the money and have the power. Short and sweet. Just how we like it. Yeah, I liked your points, Tom. They were good. Oh, thank you. Oh, thanks. No I'm just sorry, Angus. No. Our points were good too. Yeah. I didn't, yeah, 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 I, 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 didn't, I didn't need that reaffirmed. It's all good. Don't worry. Sorry. <laughs> I, just, I just was like, oh my gosh, yeah. Like, I've just felt myself nodding, you know. Don't, don't worry, Liv. Don't worry. Speak your mind always. Unless you disagree with me, then be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks to the current global picture, we are still safe to go racing. With this in mind, F1 has added four more rounds to this year's racing calendar. Liv, tell us more about this. Absolutely. So, four more rounds, as you say. We've got uh, Turkey on the 15th of November, Bahrain, double header, the 29th of November and the 6th of December, and Abu Dhabi on the 18th of December to finish the season off. So I thought I would just talk a little bit about each of the tracks and a little bit of history or anything interesting that's happened there and who, who's won in the past, etc. So starting off with Turkey, uh, this is their first time hosting F1 since 2011. Uh, the name of the track, as I'm sure you may know, is Istanbul Park, and the length is 3.3 miles. The track is anti-clockwise and has 14 turns. So the track has hosted a total of seven races there in its history, and three of those races were won by Felipe Massa with Ferrari. Um, also won by Kimi Raikkonen, Jensen Button, Lewis Hamilton, and Sebastian Vettel. So that made the, the seven who have won there. Um, in the last race, which was, as I mentioned, 2011, the pole position qualifying time was 1 minute 25 and a little bit, 
<laughs> and the quickest race lap was one minute 29. Um, so obviously similar to other tracks we've experienced recently. Um, it'll be interesting to see though, how the speed of the cars have changed since 2011. And so what those quick times, what those qualifying times and what the quickest race lap time will be um, when, we, when we do watch this race in November. Um, notable sectors on the track, obviously, turn eight um <laughs> turn eight is is known for being a really really great corner it's a fast sweeping corner with four apexes and is extremely extremely popular also of note you've got turn one is a sharp downhill left-hander immediately after the front straight there are often accidents there so that might provide a bit of excitement like nothing major just all the cars going into the first corner so that might be quite exciting to see um the 2006 race uh, witnessed an epic battle between Alonso and Schumacher for second place. And another big moment at this track was um, back in 2010, where Vettel and Weber collided in turn 12 and ignited this intra-team rivalry that lasted years. You know, no one mentioned multi-21, but <laughs> that's what where it all came from. So that's Turkey. Obviously, that's a very small bit about Turkey, but you can do your own research if you wish to, but just a little bit of a summary there. Moving on to Bahrain. Um, Bahrain has been a host circuit since 2004. I've got to mention, we, we, we say there's new tracks for the calendar. We mean they're new to the calendar. Only Turkey is actually new um, for this year. Um, so Bahrain has been a host circuit since 2004. It was the first F1 Grand Prix to be held in the Middle East. Um, it's usually third in the F1 calendar, but obviously not, not this year. And since... Um, 2008 it has been a night race which we all love um i mean i don't know actually if you do i'm just <laughs> making a generalization but everyone seems to be pretty fond of night races and it obviously looks great and they have the wonderful sparkly cars and helmets that looks great so the name in bahrain of the circuit is the international circuit the length is 3.4 miles and it has 15 turns um, repeat past winners of this track include sebastian vettel who won four races there uh, alonso has won three Hamilton has won three, including 2019, and Felipe Massa, who won two. Um, the track, and well, the race, has an actually quite interesting recent history. I'm sure many people listening will have remembered this. Um, in 2011, the race was cancelled due to the Bahraini uprising and, pro and protests, but it was rescheduled for later that year. However, the rescheduled race did not end up taking place because drivers, including Damon Hill and Mark Webber, actually protested um, and said they would not drive. They would not take part in this race um, if, it, if it did happen because they didn't want to support the really, really harsh regime and the harsh treatment of protesters and um, like activists and things like that. Um, so that race never happened. But it's in it shows you, and it's interesting to see the, the power of the drivers making a point and standing up there. And, you know, we, we're seeing... We're seeing activism uh, just today, you know, every weekend at the moment with all of the Black Lives Matter stuff. And it's it's really it's really poignant to see what they can what they can achieve with their with their um, influence. And Damon and Mark really did achieve something back in 2011 by having the race cancelled. So in 2012, um, as the excessive force continued to be used by authorities against activism, pro activists and protesters in Bahrain it was the race was going to happen but um world-renowned hacking group Anonymous it's so random I, I actually didn't know that Anonymous got involved got um actually threatened to cyber attack Formula One if they were to hold the race there 
Um, and they did. They ended up taking down one of the F1 sites, but nonetheless, the race went ahead, which just is wow. Uh, the race went ahead and was won by Seb Vettel. So two really big controversial years there, 2000 and 2000, uh, sorry, 2011 and 2012. However, let's not focus on the negatives. The track has proved to be such an exciting venue since then. Um, turn one is a prime overtaking opportunity after the DRS on the pit straight and turns two and three are taken completely flat out. Um, the hardest section on that track is turns nine and ten with two blind left-handers. Uh, the all-time lap record was achieved actually last year by Charles Leclerc, who went on to finish third in the race. I'm not sure how he'll, whether he'll manage third this year, but you never know. You know, he's had a few decent performances despite his car. And um, Hamilton and Bottas last year finished first and second. So look out for the same this year during the double header. Maybe could they get one, two on both races? We'll have to see. Um, but it does seem like a good track for the two Mercedes cars. Finally, the 2020 F1 season will then end at the Yas Marina circuit in Abu Dhabi. Abu Dhabi has hosted races since 2009 and was F1's first day-to-night race. So it starts in the day. I think it's about 5 p.m. local time. Um, and it then gets dark during the race. And there's a seamless transition as lights slowly come on throughout the throughout as time passes. And then suddenly it's a night race. Um, the length of this track is 3.4 miles with 21 turns. So a few more turns on this one. Uh, Lewis Hamilton has won at this track five times, uh, including in 2019, and Vettel has won three times there. Um, the track is a good one, according to the drivers. Nico Rosberg claimed in 2009 that every single corner was unique and was really impressed by it. However, notably, Kimi Raikkonen is not a fan of the track, but you know, Kimi Raikkonen is not a fan of <laughs> quite a lot of things. Um, the race lap record is held by Lewis Hamilton, which he achieved during his victory last year. Verstappen came second and Leclerc came in third. So, you know, another another third for that, for Leclerc there. So it'll be interesting to see how the two Mercedes, Verstappen and Leclerc, battle it out at these at these tracks at the end of the year. Notably, actually, Ferrari were handed a 50,000 euro fine for a fuel infringement in Leclerc's car last year. Um, at the beginning of the race, they found that he didn't have the right weight, to, weight of fuel, but he was able to keep his podium place. So, three great tracks to be ending the season at. Uh, personally, I'm most excited for the return of the Turkish Grand Prix. However, I am always keen on the night races, the lights and the sparkles. So I really look forward to those too. So my questions for you guys are, what are your thoughts on these final three tracks being added to the calendar? And are they good? Are they a good way to end this weird 2020 season? And which one are you most looking forward to? I'm just going to disagree with you that Abu Dhabi is a good track because it's rubbish. It's rubbish. The only reason Nico Rosberg likes Abu Dhabi is because he successfully won the F1 World Championship there in 2016 it's full of fixed radius corners there is no elevation changes it's a boring boring race and i am in no way interested in it so i'm just gonna just gonna say i agree he, with kimmy the Iceman man he said that he liked the, he thought the corners were unique when he first visited there in 2009 well they course it's unique in the yeah. first visit there anything's unique if you do it <laughs> once I'm going to agree with Kimi Raikkonen. They pay so much money to be at the end of the season because they're like, oh, everything's going to happen there. But we all know it's not. It's all gonna, it always happens. The, 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 the championship doesn't ever get tied up at the end, apart from in 2016, which is the exception. Now, I'm annoyed also 
that turkey isn't a week later because that would have fallen on Thanksgiving and we could have made a joke about Thanksgiving turkey. So that's not going to happen anymore. Although that aside, turkey is a fantastic track. Very much looking forward to that one. And Bahrain is also very good. So yeah, Bahrain good. Turkey, good. Abu Dhabi, Yeah, I also agree with Tristan. I dislike strongly the thought of Abu Dhabi having a race there. The fact we've had 12, this will be the 12th race at Abu Dhabi. I don't know how that's been possible. Actually, other than the the vast sums of money they pay to host a race. But other than that, yeah, I'm not sure how that's been possible. If you're thinking from a racing perspective, it's an absolutely atrocious track. One thing I will say, though, is that I guess in this unique Formula 1 season, whilst whilst we may complain about there being a race in Abu Dhabi, um, I feel like at the same time we have to be grateful that there's even a season at all. Or even the fact that we've... the F1 bosses have managed to string together 17 races. And not only that, it's going to be end up being 17 races in the space of, what, five and a bit months? So that's like one race every, like three races a month practically for half the year. So I think, to be fair, we do have to be grateful for that. Whilst, we do, whilst some of us may not want Abu Dhabi on the calendar, um, getting a race there is, is a good thing, I think, overall, just the fact we get a race there at all. I am very excited for Turkey because that... It was a shame when it dropped off the calendar um, a few years back because it was always an interesting track, always produced decent racing. Turn 8 is one of the, the best corners I've ever seen in F1. Um, the quadruple apex, fast left-hander, I mean, unbelievable corner. Um, and I'm sure the drivers will love the challenge of that. It'll be interesting to see with the, with Bahrain whether they do, if they do two races at the same track because there are various layouts they can do with Bahrain there's like there's the main track um, which goes the whole distance then there's a longer track which they've used for a Formula 1 race in the past there's also some like sort of shorter more sort of high speed not like oval types but they're sort of oval shaped with a few of the corners still kept in it so it'll be interesting to see if they use more than one layout or if they just do two races on the Grand Prix circuit but um, but yeah I think it, it should be um Again, Liv said about uh, the racing. Some ha- some reason there's been a weird coincidence between the racing in Bahrain getting much better ever since the race um, went under the lights, became a night race. But um, I guess we're not complaining about that. So hopefully that also produces two good races. But yeah, overall, just excited to see the see the Formula One calendar grow a bit more and um, looking forward to. I mean, still a while off that we'll get to those races. But yeah, looking forward to those races that will conclude the season and also the fact the season now will last until mid-December so you might get some F1 races close to Christmas which is very exciting. Yeah I mean it's absolutely excellent that we're having more uh, Grand Prix in this 2020 calendar and that the circumstances around the world and in these countries can allow us to do so currently. I, I don't want to go and echo what's already been said I mean I think Abu Dhabi is a very boring Grand Prix I won't you know lecture you about why I think that's the case I do, however, really like Bahrain, definitely more than I do the Istanbul Park. I think it's, it offers a great deal of straights, but then also a lot of sort of technical and properly slowed down corners, which really puts a lot of pressure and can result in severe degradation of tyres. And I think that could result in some really interesting racing as a far that it allows the teams that have a great engine and great straight line speed to have their advantages on sort of the the exit of um, turn 13 going down to 40 and then also the exit of one up to four it allows the teams like Mercedes Racing Point and the likes to, to have their fun there but then also it also offers a great deal of opportunities to teams who are perhaps hampered with their straight line speed looking at corners uh, eight nine and ten perhaps in 11 as well so 
yeah, I mean, I've always enjoyed the Grand Prix there. I mean, I have to say a bit of bit of personal knowledge here or personal experience. I've always actually really enjoyed racing on this circuit and the old uh, Formula One games on the old PS4. So um, that's a personal bit of knowledge, or should I say, viewpoint there. I enjoy the track. I'm hope that I'm hoping on. I'm indeed confident the drivers do as well. It offers a lot. Bring it on. Fingers crossed. It all goes ahead. I just hope they keep Turkey in the future. Good. That is that the point? There we go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it looks a bit boring though, Turkey. I think. Aside it's got. It's, it's a bit like. I. I think the the, the corner turn eight is a bit like the oh, turn one, two, turn two in China. The well, the the one that uh. that rotates round to the right and then changes its radius and then rotates back left. It's one of those corners that's iconic because it's it's brilliant. It's great track it's design. so unique. There's more than one way to race. The reason why Abu Dhabi is boring is because there's a racing line. And although there is a, a typical racing line, let's say in China or in, in the, like on Turn A in Turkey, tracks where the, the corners are slightly weird means that drivers can take, take it slightly differently. And that's why you get some fantastic racing. Like, for example, in China when Ricardo came from um, the midfield to, to win the race. So bring on Turkey. Also, also as well, Abu Dhabi has zero elevation as well. It's yes. It's just the, the flattest thing you will ever see. And just... designed so. They were proud of it, actually. If I remember rightly, they were really proud of, its, <laughs> of it. the fact that it was the flattest circuit. And everyone went, that's not a good thing. And they went, yes, that's it is. That's a weird flex. That is the so, flex I, I remember when it, I remember when it first, first um, came to the F1 calendar and no, everyone kind of it was a strange one because everyone looked past the the track being rubbish because there was the um, the pit lane exit that went under the track and everyone was like, "Oh, that's fancy." <laughs> and yeah, they they forgot the fact the track is a bit rubbish. Have you ever wondered who the fastest Formula One driver of all time is? Well, now you don't have to. Formula One and Amazon Web Services have recently joined forces to finally put an end to this burning and long disputed issue. Tristan, go ahead. In the last week, the FIA partnered with Amazon Web Services in order to answer once and for all that question that every young racing fan has probably voiced at some point. Who's the fastest ever F1 driver? And this is quite a difficult question. And when I actually got asked this by my 11-year-old younger brother, I gave the same response that my dad probably gave me when I asked the question. Well, it depends. The issue is that F1 is a continuously evolving sport. Being fast in the 1960s, when cars had no aero and were hilariously unreliable, cannot be compared to being fast now when cars have an electric petrol hybrid engine and lots of wings to help them go around bends without coming off the accelerator pedal. So if we're talking about being fast, one might traditionally say that names such as Jim Clark, Ayrton Senna, Michael Schumacher and Lewis Hamilton were all quite dominant. And so they were all fast, but in their eras. If one was particularly brave, you might even narrow it down to a top three, let's say Ayrton Senna, Michael Schumacher and Lewis Hamilton. Yep, all very fast drivers. They're all fastest so far. However, it doesn't really satisfy the question. Surely there is one fastest driver, and there is. Currently the fastest driver ever is Kimi Raikkonen, who, is ha who has the fastest ever lap time in an F1. However, that's not particularly satisfying either, as although it's true that Kimi Raikkonen is fast, surely he can't be the most consistently fastest ever. And maybe then we should count who has the most fastest laps in F1, 
That way, it's an equal playing field against their competitors. Well, we get a different answer again. We get Michael Schumacher, with 77 fastest laps in his career. So that's it then, right? The fastest driver in F1 is Michael Schumacher. Well, by that measurement anyway, and many F1 fans might actually agree here. But the issue is, if, if we put Ayrton Senna in the same car as Schumacher, or Hamilton, or even Raikkonen, would he be faster? It's these unanswerable questions that keeps us from being 100% confident that the fastest driver is who we say is fastest. Luckily, however, Amazon Web Services and F1 decided to put us all out of our misery and just get a computer to tell us the answer. And I've got here in my hand a list of the fastest driver who I suppose will officially be the fastest ever. So here are the top 10. Sebastian Vettel at number 10, 9 John O'Trulli, 8 Heki Kovalainen, 7 Charles Leclerc, 6 Nico Rosberg, 5 Fernando Alonso, 4 Max Verstappen, 3 Lewis Hamilton, 2 Michael Schumacher and 1 Ayrton Senna. So there we are, the official fastest F1 driver ever is Ayrton Senna followed by Schumacher then Hamilton. And to be honest, if you actually asked F1 fans, you probably wouldn't get a very different answer there, maybe just in a slightly different order. But how did they come up with this? Well, firstly, they say they looked in at teammates. They say exactly the same day and exactly the same situation and the same opportunity and a set, set time increments between the two teammates were compared to another team. If so, if driver A is quicker than driver B, driver B goes on to another team. And if he's quicker than driver C, then you can say that A was quicker than C because A beat B in his own team and B has beaten C in another team. So then we can confirm that A is quicker than C. So that's pretty straightforward. Mm. And then, however, they get even more vague because they then claim that by processing how often drivers can outperform their teammates, then they can find out who is consistently fast and extrapolate that across time using, and I'm quoting here, technology that Amazon can provide. So I guess that clears things up then. The fastest ever driver is is Senna, that's if you believe Amazon AI that is, and judging by the state of other AIs such as the Amazon Alexa, I wouldn't necessarily put my faith in it. But I'm intrigued to know what, what you think who, who the fastest driver ever is. I think it might well be Senna, but you might think it's someone completely different. I, I can't lie, I'm absolutely baffled by some of the calculations that have come out here. The top three, I think somehow they've nailed, I don't get how they've nailed the top three, but messed up the rest of the thing. So the top three, if you, t if you told me to name the three greatest slash fastest F1 drivers in history, my immediate top three would be Senna, Schumacher, Hamilton. So it makes sense they're the top three. Um, and in terms of the order of it, I would probably, based on the fact that he's got so many more... I mean, you talk about comparing across the eras being so difficult, but I think the fact Hamilton now is approaching the 100-pole position mark, while Senna and Schumacher both never got past 68. Um, that's, so 68 for Schumacher, 65 for Senna. I think it has to be, without debate, that Hamilton is the fastest of all time because he's got so many more poles than, than those two. Whilst those two were phenomenally fast, Hamilton's got so many more poles. The rest of the list, though, I have no... I don't... I cannot understand how someone... The two that stick out, obviously, are Heike Kovalainen and Jarno Trulli, guys who, between them, have a combined two Grand Prix wins in about 250 races. Whilst if you look at the names who aren't present on that list, Alain Prost, four-time world champion, Juan Manuel Fangio, five-time world champion, Jackie Stewart, three-time world champion. Jim Clark, two-time world champion. 
Nicky Lauda, three-time world champion. I could go on and on and on. I won't, but I could because the list is just, I don't understand. And also how um, Max Verstappen and Charles Leclerc, admittedly very fast drivers and will be stars of the future. But how are they so far up the list, having been in Formula 1 for not that long? Um, how is Max Verstappen only just behind Lewis Hamilton? How is he above Fernando Alonso, the two-time world champion? How is Sebastian Vettel? Like he may, like if you take into account the, all, all the other world champion names I mentioned, he may, might not make the top 10. But how is he below Heike Kovlein and Jarno Trulli when he's been... He, even Sebastian Vettel has got like 50-plus pole positions. The, the list... Guys, the list just baffles me, honestly. Um, I think it baffles. I think it baffles most people. This is why it came up. I think the reason why Max Verstappen and Charles Leclerc are so high up on the list is probably due to data input that you can extrapolate from. It's relatively common knowledge, and I think also commonsensical, that if you don't have much data, then you start to correlate um, quite quickly between things that might not necessarily cause uh, have causation. So. I think perhaps if we, we look to this list again in 20 years' time, when you've got a full uh, range of data from Max Verstappen and, and Charles Leclerc, you might get a, much, a, a, a different um, outcome. And I think that's part of, the, part of the issue for me, is this doesn't take into account the length of time a driver has been in F1. I know you mentioned, oh, it's a question people might ask, and I personally don't think it was necessary in the first place. Like, I think it's nice for everyone to have that little that discussion and that argument about, oh, no, I think this person's the quickest. I think this person's the quickest, but the joy in it, well, not joy, but it's actually quite frustrating. But the whole fun in it is the sense that we'll actually never know. And now they're actually trying to work it out. And to me, no, like, stay away. It, it, it's, too, it's not possible. So trying their best isn't enough. I'd rather just not know, if that makes sense. And I don't think that... Yeah, it just doesn't make sense, does it? And the amount of people who disagreed and then they kept posting about it everywhere. I was like, you're going to have to stop soon because every single person disagrees with some of the names you've got on that list. But I would agree um, in the sense that, yeah, Lewis Hamilton does come to mind. Obviously, he's, he's very recent compared, you know, compared to some others on the list. However, you know, it's very, very clear now that he is possibly one of the best driver that Formula One has had and he has proved it again and again and again and as you mentioned those pole positions so yes I get the top three I get especially Lewis but I there's no way there's honestly no way really of knowing because of the different cars and how different tracks cars the, the drivers themselves every situation is so different personally I quite like the mystery and the intrigue and the memories of thinking about the older, you know, the older drivers, the likes of Ayrton Senna, Alain Prost, and like, enjoying the sense that they were quick, but we'll never know how quick they were against Lewis, and that's okay. And so, to me, I'm sorry, this is such a negative way to finish. <laughs> I It annoyed me that they did it. Um, and I think that, you know, the response showed that people just want to have that discussion with their mates, like, like how we guys, how we are, and not have to have some sort of robot telling us what the fact is when it doesn't seem correct. Yeah, I mean, I definitely echo what you've just said there, Liv. It's ultimately going to be subjective more than objective regarding who the fastest driver is because of the disparity between cars and models. What I think they should have done here is 
put who the fastest driver was in a certain era or type of car. So if you'd have compared, let's say, uh, Lewis Hamilton uh, with Alonso in that type of car that they both drove in, in um, 2008 for McLaren and when they were both in the sport. If you were to go and compare those times and see, oh, okay, in the year of 2009 or between 2010 and 2013, these were the top 10 fastest drivers. And between 1967 and 1975, these three drivers were the fastest we've found because by looking at their, their performances in the same model of the car across the same calendar and number of races we can therefore come up with this answer which is easy to understand which is logical and is more clear to understand that say say this this blasted algorithm i think this is similarly to live i think this is a big old pr stunt from amazon and they're trying to sort of promote themselves within formula one as the sort of all-knowing uh, organization I mean the fact that they said we've worked this out through Amazon technology I mean it's probably the most boastful and and false thing you'll ever hear this year from Formula One and that's saying something um, so yeah they've bitten off more than they could chew if they were to go and put it in eras or sort of break it down and give us clear answers in that regard I'd be far happier I think a lot of people would be far happier and there'd be less sort of confrontation clashes and sort of keyboard warrior battles and shooing on Twitter um, which I think would just be a good thing for everyone and so ends another episode of F1 in Review thank you very much dear listener for listening to I believe episode 7 and right to the end of this one thank you very much we've spoken about a vast array of topics first of all to do with Williams F1 they will no longer be owned by the family they will no longer be owned by Frank Williams they'll be owned by the US investment company based in New York City Drilton Capital uh, for 200 million pounds the deal was we've spoken about this the pros and cons this has for the short term and the long term of Williams F1. Secondly, we spoke about Formula One's 8th Concord Agreement, which is signed on the 18th of August between all teams, and we'll see all these teams remain on track, fighting it out until 2025. It'll be very interesting to see whether this document will be able to live up to the hype it is promising. Thirdly, we spoke about four more rounds being added to the 2020 Formula One calendar. We've got many recurring favourites which are rejoining the calendar, but in a different order due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And some old tracks returning again to fill in the void, which we've had from a lack of Formula One action. It'll be very interesting to see what those races will provide us with. And finally, we spoke about the great task undertaken by Formula One and Amazon Web Services to discuss who the fastest F1 driver of all time is. Some of us are not too sure whether they've got it right. Many of us are questioning the algorithm, but maybe they're right. Maybe they have hit the nail on the head and we are just none the wiser. But I guess only time will tell on that one. Thank you very much to Tristan, Liv and Angus, of course, for your excellent expertise on a vast array of topics. And we will be back next week to discuss the 2020 Belgian Grand Prix. We believe it is going to be raining in either qualifying or on race day, and this could result in, you know, a very exciting, very interesting race weekend ahead of us. Fingers crossed it is. It can't get any worse than Spain. That's the truth. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time.
you've jinxed it now. We're gonna have like a freak weather storm that's gonna come in. It's gonna be 35 degree heat. <laughs> I think you're overestimating my influence on global temperature and weather, but thank you very much. <laughs> oh, I want some rain today. Oh, yeah, it's raining. Yeah, nice hey, raining. Well, Tom, if the old F1 stuff doesn't work out for you, we can just send you to BBC Weather or something like that. Golly.